Somebody unfairly tested me this morning. They asked me what today was. I said, uh, day after the par three contest? No. First day of the tournament? No. Opening day of card season? No. Middle of turkey season? No. It's Hebrews 11 today, they said. Oh, yeah, that's right. <clears throat> Hebrews 11 is what we're studying, verse 17 to 31. And we have been looking at this chapter for <clears throat> a few weeks now. And remember, we're, we have to look at context in the, the immediate verse before what's marked as chapter 11 in our Bibles is 1039. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. I think Jay had been reading my notes. That's what we're that's what we're studying about, where <clears throat> we're given chapter 11 to encourage us to do what he's going to command us to do in chapter 12, verse 1, run the race with endurance. Do not shrink back. But remember, the only way we can run the race with endurance is not by just determining we're going to do it. It's not by the strength of our faith. It's not by our courage and our faithfulness, our resources. It is what we're learning in this passage is summarized in chapter 12. It is by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the one who has perfected our faith, the one who has pioneered our faith, the one who has authored our faith. So chapter 11 is not a hall of heroes of people we admire, of people that we, we, uh, we look up to and say, wow, if we could just be as great as they are. Chapter 11 is a story, a trophy room of God's faithfulness, the triumph of God's faithfulness over unfaithful people, the, the ability of God in His grace to take very imperfect, profoundly flawed, broken, dysfunctional people and get them over the finish line. And not just so, but accomplish amazing things that bring Him glory in the process. That's what we're looking at chapter 11 to see. That's what He's giving to us. He's telling these people who are discouraged in their faith, who, have been, who are being persecuted in their faith, uh, they haven't even yet shed blood for their faith, but the, but the heat of persecution is turned up on them, and they're beginning to wonder, is this worth it? Can I make it? And God says to them, not, you better make it. He says to them instead, you will make it, because I am your God, Christ is your Savior, the Holy Spirit is your power. And I am working faith in you, which enables you to get across the finish line as well as to finish well. With that clear view of the purpose of this passage, I want you to look at verse 17. We'll read through 31. <clears throat> By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. 
By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Let's pray together. Would you open our eyes, O Lord, to behold your faithfulness, your faithfulness in the gospel, that we would not leave this place in any delusion that we have to garner more resources and be better people, be stronger, be more faithful, work up our courage. We need all of that, yes, we must be those things, we must be obedient, but we say to you first thing this morning, we cannot do it. So we pray with the great Augustine, the theologian of the past, command whatever you will from this passage. But please, please, give what you command. In Jesus' name we pray it. God's men said together, amen. This is also the 500th anniversary, or we've just come through the celebration of the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther, the reformer, Martin Luther, nailing the 95 theses to the castle church at, um, at Wittenberg. 1517. Uh, there are lots of imperfections of Luther's life, as is, as is true of every uh, person of history. Some things about him that make us cringe, and some things that we see in him that we know are clearly not from the gospel. But God was faithful despite his, his unfaithfulness and his sins, and the, what he did was to, through Luther, make it clear to the church that one is saved by grace alone through faith, not by works, so that no one may boast, just like Ephesians 2 says. Uh, Luther was not reared in that faith. Luther had been reared with the idea that you get into heaven by being consistent in keeping a certain number of laws and a certain number of ordinances that are prescribed to you by the church that grace is something that is earned rather than received. 
He grew up with the, the image of an angry Christ. He had a, a church in his neighborhood, the, the church at Mansfeld, and there was a stained glass window of an angry, judgmental Christ, a Christ coming back again in judgment, which he certainly will do, but it was put there so as to make clear to the people, you can't go directly to Jesus. He's a judge. You need someone in between. You need saints or Mary. And so that was the image he had of, of Jesus Christ. And so eventually he thought that the only way he was going to be saved was not by pursuing a law career or <clears throat> the other things that were expected of him, but the only way he could be saved was to become a priest, to take up the sacrament of being a priest, which would force him daily to do a certain number of things. It would force him to do everything that he was supposed to do, and then by that monkishness, he said, by that, those monkish acts, he would earn his way into heaven. As he told the Duke of Saxony one occasion, giving his testimony, if any monk could have earned his way into heaven by his monkery, I could have. Well, he was in the monastery, and, and uh, he was just wearing out his confessor. You know, every time he would stub his toe and, and say a bad word, he would come. Every time he forgot to say his prayers, every, every minute uh, flaw in his life, he was confessing and just wearing him out. The, the confessor got tired of listening to him. John von Staupitz, who was uh, not really just uh, uh, bothered by him, but he knew, that, he knew that Luther's conscience was, was oversensitive, or at least, or better I should say, he was looking in the wrong place for the comfort of his conscience. And Staupitz seemed to be a man who had been awakened by the gospel already because this is what he told Luther. <clears throat> he asked him one day, why are you so sad, Brother Martin? This was Luther's pastor, we might say. And he told, and, uh, he told him, because I've done this and this and this and I can't do that and that and that. Staupitz said, why do you torment yourself with all these speculations and these high thoughts? Look at the wounds of Jesus Christ to the blood that he has shed for you. It is there that the grace of God will appear to you. Instead of torturing yourself on account of your sins, throw yourself into the Redeemer's arms. Trust in him, in the righteousness of his life, in the atonement of his death. Do not shrink back. God is not angry with you, Martin. It is you who are angry with God. Listen, listen to the Son of God. Well, Luther, this brilliant academic pastor, this monk, then asked Staupitz a follow-up question. How do I do that? How do I listen? to the Son of God. And this medieval priest who clearly knew the gospel himself said to Martin, you listen to him in the Bible. It's a revolutionary, radical idea in those days. 
the, the standard line was, no, you listen to him in the church. The church will tell you when you have done enough. The church will tell you what to do, and the church will tell you when you have made it. The church will save you. No, Staupet said, Christ will save you by the righteousness of his life, the blood of his atonement, and you will look at the Son of God. You will listen to him by the Word of God, by the Bible. That's what we're doing. We come with all of our preconceived notions of who we are. The whole world tells us who we are, tells us what we must do if we're going to be acceptable, if we're going to avoid shame, if we're going to atone for whatever we've done. The world, your conscience, people, your family, whoever is telling you how to save yourself. And there is only one voice that matters. That's the voice of God speaking in the Scriptures through Jesus Christ. Only one who has died, and that one who has died is the one who is able to justify, and that one who is able to justify only does so by your receiving it by faith. So our text tells us once again, self-salvation only produces doubt, but this is the proposition, God works through us by the faith He gives. We must run the race with endurance. We run the race with endurance, having already come to Christ. We run the race of endurance in response to the grace we have received. We run the race with endurance with the confidence that He has won the battle. We run the race with endurance by constantly going back to Him before we try again. And we do so with this confidence that it is not the quality of our faith, but that faith itself is a gift. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that, even that faith is not of yourselves. It too is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. So over and over again in this text, we've learned that God works faith in the person. God puts an instrument of faith in the person, and that's what explains why the person is faithful. Perhaps it's not seen any clearer than in chapter 11, verse 11. By faith, Sarah's womb was opened. Does that mean that when Sarah finally worked up enough faith, when she finally believed enough of God's promises, then she was able to have a baby? Absolutely not. She doubted God to the point that the baby was born. She laughed at the promise that God would bring a child through her. It was faith that God put in her and said, I'm going to put an instrument in you by which I'm going to work my will and bring about the one who's going to be the heir of the Redeemer of the world. I'm going to do it in spite of you. And so now we come to these, this, these three periods of Israel's history in front of us from verses 17 and on, the patriarchs, the Exodus, and Canaan. And we see the same thing again. We see that God puts faith in His people, does His work through them, and only that explains why the, redemptive, uh, the line of redemption comes along, why Christ ultimately comes. And what I want you to see this morning in these three pictures, in these three periods, the patriarchs, the exodus, and the conquest, or Canaan, I want you to see not three kinds of faith. There's only one kind of faith. That's saving faith. That's receiving faith. I want you to see three characteristics of the faith that God produces in us. I want you to see it for your encouragement. Number one, 
I want you to see in verses 17 to 22 from the patriarchs that God produces in us to His glory counterintuitive faith. Counterintuitive faith. Faith that just doesn't, it's just not what you would naturally arrive at. It's not what you would naturally feel. It's not what you would naturally conclude as you observe the circumstances and and the situation around you. God gives a faith that is counterintuitive. See it first of all in Abraham, verses 17 to 19. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises when it was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said through Isaac, shall your offspring be named, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead from which he figuratively did receive him back. Now, you can read about that full story in chapter 22, Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 9. But let me recount for you just a moment the, the story and the trajectory of Abraham's life so you can appreciate what an accomplishment this was by God's faithfulness in Abraham. Abraham was called from a place called Ur of the Chaldees, I mean, it was, a, it was the heart in Mesopotamia, the heart of pagan worship. He was a moon worshiper. God showed up and said, I want you to come with me. I want you to leave everything. I want you to come to this strange place on the other side of the world, and I'm going to fulfill some promises to you. <clears throat> well, he was, he was going to leave his, his family home. He was supposed to leave all of his possessions. He was supposed to go to a place that, wasn't, that was hostile. And God was going to fulfill some nebulous promise. Well, God somehow got him to do that. Oh, but then along about, half, about halfway there in Haran, Abraham stopped. He's still dragging all this stuff along. He took it with him anyway. Got a bunch of goats and a bunch of servants and all this stuff he's schlepping along across the desert. And it bogs him down. And he stops. And the Bible says God called him again. He starts off again. And then at some point in there, there's a, there's, a, uh, there's a famine in the land. Now, God had said, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a people. I'm going to make all these, I'm going to fulfill all these promises. In fact, you're going to have ancestors that are more numerous than the stars in the sky. And <clears throat> I'm going to give you all of this in a land flowing in milk, milk and honey. But... Abraham reads in the paper there's going to be a famine, and he said, i got to take matters into my own hands. So he goes down to Egypt. Well, on his way, he figures out, you know, I have a very beautiful wife. I get down there among these Egyptians, and they're going to want my wife. So, Sarah, this is what we're going to do. You're going to tell them you're my sister. That's what they did. Pharaoh took her in, and this bad thing started happening to Pharaoh. What in the world's going on? Well, it's my sister after all, and you can't believe that... that, that uh, that the Egyptians didn't kill him, but he, he left and, uh, and went, went back on the road that he was supposed to go on. And then, then <clears throat> uh, uh, later, a similar thing happens. Abimelech comes into the Negev and he, he, he encounters Abimelech. He says, I, if, I, if I don't tell them that you're my sister, he's going to kill me. And then she agrees to do the same thing. Sarah's not much better than Abraham. And uh, and they do the same thing. And God comes to Abimelech and said, I'm going to kill you for sleeping with Abraham's wife. His wife, I thought this was just somebody. And then he's delivered again. In other words, there's not much very impressive about Abraham between chapter 12 and chapter 22. Abraham has 
very spotty faith. It's inconsistent. He's willing to sacrifice his wife twice. He disbelieves God's commands. And then God tests him, the Bible says in chapter 22. I want you to take your son up on Mount Moriah and I want you to sacrifice him to me. Now, he's finally been given the promised son. I'm going to make you the father of many nations, so here we go, one child. But now I want you to kill that one child. Now, what's he supposed to think? How in the world is this ever going to happen if I kill the only child that God has given me? And yet, Abraham, for the first time, we hear no questioning, we hear no wandering. As soon as he gets the command, he says, Isaac, pack up the wood. We saddle up tomorrow. We go up to Mount Moriah. Build the altar. Put the wood on it. Get it ready. Climb up there, Isaac. And here comes the knife. And God says, stop. I have a substitute. Because now I know you fear me. Now, fear in the Bible is not servile fear, always. I mean, sometimes when you deserve to be afraid, you're afraid. But when, when in this case, when it says Abraham feared him, as one theologian says, that is a comprehensive consciousness of God. That is the confidence that God is all-powerful and God is all-good. God didn't test as if to say, I wonder what Abraham's going to do. He tested Abraham to bring out of him the faith that he had finally worked in Abraham. And he said, see, Abraham, you do know that I am the sovereign, good, promise-keeping God. You were willing even to sacrifice your son. And the writer of Hebrews explains to us that this is where this is where Abraham's mind went. If God has promised to bring the Messiah through my son, and this is the only son, and he says he's going to kill my son, there's only one conclusion. He's going to raise him from the dead. There's no concept of resurrection in the Bible before Genesis 22. It hadn't been revealed. But that's what he reasoned because of the faithfulness of God. That's counterintuitive faith, counter to sight. Now, going more quickly to Isaac and, and uh, Joseph. Isaac, or Jacob, <clears throat> Isaac is in chapter 27, verses 1 to 45, you can read about it, but in verse 20 of our text, Isaac is not really impressive. You know, it's a longer discussion, but we have some indications from the way Genesis is set up. People are honored in Genesis with a, what is called a toledot, which is just a family history. These are the generations of. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Abraham. These are the generations of Moses. These are the generations of so forth. There is no toledot for Isaac, which seems to indicate that God says, and yes, there was Isaac, who despite his unfaithfulness, I worked my promises anyway. And we have to read between the lines in some of these narratives. And what do we know about Isaac? 
we know this. He loved red meat. That's all we really know. He loved red meat. That's why, and then that's why he loved Esau. Because Esau was a hunter. And Esau could bring him the red meat. We just get this picture of this indulgent, spoiled brat, really. And he's heard how the line is to progress. He's heard that God is sovereign, that God is good. He's heard that, that the Messiah is coming through him and that he is supposed to look to God and do whatever God tells him to do. But nevertheless, the day comes that he's supposed to put the blessing on his sons, on his twins. And uh, what he's determined to do is put the blessing on Esau because he's the hunter. And Jacob and Rebekah literally pull the wool over his eyes and fool him and convince you know, uh, jo uh, Jacob was the smooth man and they put the wool over his forearm and he's blind. Jacob is, uh, Isaac is blind so he feels, he thinks this is Esau, puts the blessing on him. And he finds out later that, he's, that, that it's wrong, but the proof that Isaac knows that God is sovereign and God's will will be done and he must submit to it is he doesn't reverse or try to reverse the blessing. He knows that God's blessing rests on that one whom God has chosen. So faith that is produced by God sovereignly is first counter to sight, secondly is counter literally to feel, and thirdly, it is counter to historical precedent. The third story we read, and I guess the third and fourth stories I forgot to put in here, Joseph too, but Jacob and Joseph are both counter to historical precedent. You can read about those in Genesis chapter 48, verses 8 to 22, and you can also read about Joseph's instruction for his bones at the end of Genesis 50. Uh, Jake, uh, uh, Jacob, when he was old... Uh, remember, he had been brought into Egypt to be saved from the famine because of Joseph, because of his son Joseph. Joseph brings his father and his brothers. They reconcile. And now the time has come for Jacob to put a blessing on Joseph's sons, just like Isaac put a blessing on, uh, Jacob's, on Jacob's head. And so... Jacob, following, or Joseph, following tradition, brings the oldest son forward first, Manasseh, and the second oldest, Ephraim. And this is historical precedent. It's what we follow in our own day, that the oldest child is the heir of the inheritance. And so he brings the, the oldest child forward, Manasseh, and apparently Jacob's eyes are not very good either, or he's, at least he's frail, he's in bed. And our text tells us that, that Jacob worshipped on his staff. Well, that's a little strange, isn't it? Well, the Hebrew word for staff is very similar to the Hebrew word for bed. There are no vowels in Hebrew. It's just consonants. So the same consonants for bed and staff, they're the, they're the same. So it seems more likely that since we know that Jacob is in bed, he's worshipping. And he's asking the Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to proceed? What are your plans for the future? And the Lord tells him, I want you to bless Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. And so 
He brings the boys to him. Manasseh is going to be receive the right hand, and Ephraim's going to receive the left hand. And Jacob does what? He crosses his arms. He blesses Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. And God is saying in that, <clears throat> I do things my way, not according to historical precedent. Historical precedent does not determine the way my ways are going to proceed. He says the same thing to you. I don't care what your past history is. I don't care what kind of family you've come from. I don't care what the world says always happens in these situations. I am your God. I am going to fulfill my covenant in you. You are my child. I'm going to get you home. I'm going to do my will through you. Don't be afraid of historical precedent. Joseph is a similar example. The tradition was that uh, if you're Egyptian royalty, you have your body embalmed, mummified, and they put it in a pyramid, and then that's going to be the symbol that that's where you're going to live forever. And Joseph said, no, I know by revelation that we're going to be in the promised land. Just because I'm here now, this is, a, this is a detour. It's been a detour for about 430 years, will be a detour for 430 years. But God made a promise to Abraham that we would be in the promised land, and in the promised land he would bring his son, and the works of redemption would accomplish there. And just because we're here and we'll be here for another three, four, 300 and some years, it does, God's plan, God's promise is still secure. So you put my body in a box so that when the day comes that God liberates his slaves, they can take me out and bury me where I'm supposed to be. Historical precedent is irrelevant to me. God's promises, his faithfulness are everything to me. So we know that happened, didn't we? When we see that movie about Charlton Heston, we saw his bones. You see it, there's that box, they hoist it up on their, on their shoulders and take it right out. The Ten Commandments. So there's the first very major point, that the kind of faith that God produces is a kind of faith that brings glory to Him, and it's counterintuitive. Regardless of what it appears, regardless of what it feels like, regardless of what history tells you will always happen, no, it's God's plan that will triumph through you. He is faithful. Secondly, <clears throat> the kind of faith He gives is a brave faith. Verses 23 to 29, see it in the Exodus. It's braver than threats. Verses 23, 27 of our text. And then you can read about these historical incidents in Exodus chapter 1, 2, and 3. But uh, remember Pharaoh, so this is after Joseph had died, and another Pharaoh came up who did not remember Joseph. And he's intimidated by this birthright of the Israelites. They're, they're, they're having babies at such a rate that they're going to outnumber us. And then they're going to take us over and I'm going to lose my power. So my plan is to kill all of the sons of the Israelites. So he gave this command. When a baby, <clears throat> when a, when a baby boy is born, I want you midwives to get that baby and throw him in the Nile. And we're told in, in, in Exodus chapter 1 that there were two Hebrew midwives named Shifra and Puah. It's really impressive. These two very nondescript 
women, these slave women, are forever named by God. Their names written in Scripture to honor them. Shifran Puah said effectively to Pharaoh, you may think you're God, but we know who God is. And because we fear God, not that they're afraid of God, but they know that God is sovereign, a comprehensive consciousness of God. Because we know that God is sovereign, that He's good, that He's going to fulfill His plan, we're not going to throw those babies in the night. We're going to save those babies. And Pharaoh wondered what in the world has happened. What's going on? They said, I'm sorry, they're just, these Hebrew women are so fast. They have these babies so fast we can't even catch them. Thought the fool was worthy of a foolish answer. But part of their bravery resulted in the saving of Moses. Moses' parents apparently feared God too, and they saved Moses, put him in the little basket, sent him down the river, and only did what only God could do. He comes right into Pharaoh's court, and he becomes one of Pharaoh's household. They were brave. They were made brave. It would be easy for us. It's easy for us, isn't it? When the government threatens me, boy, I've got to compromise my standards, whatever it is, in my business, in my family. When something threatens, you know, if I'm threatened to lose sales or I'm threatened to lose patience or I'm threatened to lose my social club, then I've got to bow to that. Have you ever received pressure? as great as Shifra and Puah and Moses' parents? This faith that God produces is braver than man's threats. Faith that God produces is braver than material loss. Verses 24 to 26, here's the story of, uh, and you can find it in Exodus chapter 2. Verses 10 to 12, where Moses someday, one day realizes, I'm a Jew. I'm part of God's faithful people. And I'm not sure what's supposed to happen here, but I know these people are not supposed to stay here as slaves. He rises up and intercedes for them. He ends up killing a man. He has to leave. He goes into the desert. <clears throat> and Hebrews explains to us, now, Mindful, this is 1,500 years before Christ is born. Hebrews tells us Moses considered the riches of Christ more valuable than the riches of Egypt. Some people say there's a radical wall between the Old Testament and New Testament. The, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews didn't get that memo. Moses is looking toward Christ. He's looking toward the Redeemer who is coming, and he's saying, even though that may take thousands of years to get here, I am going to act faithfully in the present, and I'm going to choose to believe God's promise more than I'm going to cherish my income, my status, anything. I'm banking it all on Christ. This faith that we're given is also braver than the fear of death, verses 28 and 29 of our text. You can read about this in Exodus chapter 12 and Exodus chapter 14, the story of the Passover, where, now just think about this, because, because we know about Good Friday and Easter, we tend to read that back into this text, and we should, those were anticipating the death of Christ, but just think about this 
having, hearing this for the first time, Moses, I want you to tell the people to do this. Take one of their lambs and slaughter it. What do you mean? We're already starving. Take our best lamb and kill it? For what reason? Just do it. I want you to take its blood and I want you to paint it on your door. What in the world does that mean? What good is that going to do? Pharaoh's going to kill us anyway. He's already, you've already ticked him off nine times. And, and, then, and, and then you say there's a death angel coming. What, in, what good is putting blood on the door going to do? Well, they do it. A number of them do it. And then they close the door and they, they get behind that door covered in blood. And you can imagine, you can imagine the, the differences in people. Their, their husbands and wives, because of the tension, they're fighting with each other. Kids aren't disobeying. Others are having their devotions. And some are, some are saying, this can't possibly work. I don't know. I think I'm going to die. And others say, God's going to be faithful. You know, none of that happening, nothing happening behind the door is relevant. The death angel doesn't look behind the door and say, ooh, bad kids. Oh, unfaithful husband and wife, ta-ta-ta, you're going to lose your firstborn. Oh, you, you have good faith. You believe that I'm good to my promises. You don't have much faith, so I'm going to kill you. Totally irrelevant to the blood. The death angel passes over the blood. Some of you are afraid of death, afraid of dying, afraid of missing out on something holding on desperately to the material things you have, the name you have, the getting that next tick on your career calendar. You're desperate. You're living in terror because you're not living under the blood. The kind of faith that Christ gives, that he offers, that's free for the taking is counterintuitive. It's brave. It gets even better. Verses 30 and 31 the kind of faith that God gives through Christ is simple. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Now, yes, they you remember, and you can read about that in Joshua chapter 6. They didn't have the resources to bring down Jericho, this stronghold in Canaan. So God said, here's the way you're going to take them down. You're going to walk around the wall seven times. Now, you know, I've actually heard people, even smart people, try to explain to me that what happened was that when walking around seven times, they set up a sympathetic resonance. And then eventually, you know, it's like if you, if you, if you get a, a, a sailboat on its, its side for too long and you start humming, you know, you sailors know humming. If you leave it at that point, it'll just literally shake itself to death. Well, that's what they did, they said. They walk around seven times, they're in perfect cadence, and then the walls shake down. Well, that's harder to believe than the miracle, isn't it? <laughs> they walked around seven times. They blew their trumpets, made all kinds of racket. What brought the walls down? The shout of faith. They walked around seven times. They didn't do a thing. They made all kinds of racket. They blew their horns. They did all kinds of things. 
It was only when God said, okay, now, you've done all the walking and the, this is just the way you live life. You walk around in circles and you think, I'm going to walk these walls down. And then God says, now stop. Shout by faith. And the walls came down. Simple faith. Just trust me. Well, it gets even simpler. Rahab the prostitute. You read about her in chapter in Joshua chapter 2. And remember the spies come in the land and they're hot on their trail. The, the enemies are hot on their trail and they find Rahab and they say, hide us or let us down over the, out of the window. And Rahab said, I've heard about you. And we know your God is sovereign. I'll do this. All she did was hear a word about God. And it was enough to, for her to believe, act. You know, I told you about uh, some years ago that, that uh, I had the privilege of leading this woman to Christ named Mrs. Austin, and she's the one who kept repeating there was a law in Virginia. Well, Mrs. Austin was almost 90 when she came to faith, and, and she had spent her life as a college professor denying the faith, so she knew nothing about the faith, and there wasn't a lot of time to explain stuff. And so I said, Mrs. Austin, Let's repeat the Apostles' Creed. I'm going to allow you to read it. And can you confess to all of this? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit. I don't understand. It doesn't matter. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried, descended into hell. Third day He rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Forgiveness of sins. Apostolic Church, yes, I believe. She's lying in her bed. What else can, can she do? What can she, how can she act? She could take the Lord's Supper, and she could receive baptism. Simple faith. She didn't have an opportunity. Like the, like the thief on the cross, she didn't have an opportunity to do anything. All she could do was receive the gift of salvation, simple faith. Today, your faith does not have to be as profound as Abraham's or Moses or Shifra or Puah's or Joseph's. It can only be as Rahab's, Mrs. Austin's. You are my king. And I trust you. Do through me all of your will. Back to Martin Luther. <clears throat> Sometime after the Reformation had begun and he was preaching the gospel regularly and translating the scriptures, you know, nobody could read the scriptures for themselves. It was in Latin, so he was having to tell all the stories from the Bible. And so he was telling uh, Katie, his wife, and their children the story of Abraham and Isaac. 
And he gets to the dramatic point where Abraham raises his knife over Isaac's body and uh, he's about to plunge it in. And Katie says, stop, I don't believe that story. You're telling it wrong. That did not happen. God would not do that to his son. And Luther said, but Katie, he did. That is your confidence. No matter what your doubts are, no matter where you can't believe, you take your eyes off yourself, off your inadequacies, off history, historical precedent, whatever it is, and you put it on what God has done for you in Christ. And if he has done that, and not only killed his son in your place, but raised him for your victory, there is nothing that can hinder his good purposes of getting you across the finish line, finishing well to the glory of Jesus Christ.